Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up and let's get started on today's podcast. Martin McDonald is a clinical performance nutritionist, motivational speaker, and educator. He holds an undergraduate and two postgraduates, one in clinical nutrition and one in sports nutrition. Martin is the CEO of the Mac Nutrition Collective and founder of the MNU Certification, the UK's first ever 12-month evidence-based vocational online nutrition course. You can reach out to Martin on Instagram, he's at Martin Nutrition, or head to his website, which is www.mac-nutrition.com. Let's jump into today's nutrition myth-busting podcast with Martin. Welcome, Martin, to the podcast. We're very excited to have you on today, and I would love to start by just um, letting our listeners know a little bit more about you and particularly what you do just on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. Um, So, yeah, my background was initially in sports nutrition. So, in my younger years, I competed in natural bodybuilding. Um, And that kind of led me down lots of different paths of reading and interest and bro science, pseudoscience, whatever you want to call it. And um, I ended up going to kind of university and um, studying for my bachelor's and then my master's. And then I, through kind of competing in the area of bodybuilding, it's it's funny because you you see people discussing this in, in terms of Instagram and social media these days. Oh, just because you, they've got a six pack or just because they look this way doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. And you can get on board with it. But to be frank, that was something that bolstered where I went. I, you know, I was someone who was studying with your brick and mortar institutions and getting my degrees and masters. But the fact that I had a six pack was almost more important to um, people when kind of respect to my knowledge. So I then ended up working kind of Olympic athletes and professional footballers and these kind of people and just, you know, really loved um, the kind of practitioner side. But I've always really loved public speaking. So I was a lecturer um, at a couple of different academic institutions. And I actually got more of a buzz through standing in front of a, a big audience and educating them. And, and I enjoy kind of using a bit of humor in, in what I do and just kind of, I call it infotainment. And kind of that's what I do on my Instagram stories, like infotainment, um, kind of trying to just keep people interested, but also then educate them on the stuff that I think will help them. So yeah, as things progressed, I did. I got kind of a, a small online following of generally practitioners as opposed to maybe general public types. Um, because I was talking on a level that was maybe a little bit higher, I've always loved reading nutrition research. So then disseminating that to maybe people who were a, a step down or two from the level that I was reading at, you know, even just like your personal trainer types who maybe haven't gone to university, but they just really want to learn good information rather than stuff they may be seeing in uh, magazines, etc. So anyway, after that, I then became a bit of a mentor and um, uh, teaching more kind of fitness professional types. And, and that's kind of led me to my, you know, day to day now, which is more of this kind of mentoring nutrition, health, fitness professionals in our Mac Nutrition Mentoring Lab, as well as then our kind of uh, Mac Nutrition Uni certification, our online certification, which kind of teaches people via an evidence-based kind of model of nutrition and practice. Wonderful. And I love what you do. And every time you you um, sort of help to disseminate that evidence-based research online as well, I'm always very, um, very supportive of that as well, because you do put out some amazing oh, research as well. Thank you. Now, I loved, I saw a quote on your Instagram. I can't remember how long ago now, but it basically said something like, weight loss is as simple as calories in and calories out. However, we know that calories in and calories out isn't that simple. So a bit of something to sort of get your head around. But I love this because I feel like people just want to focus on this one thing. It's like, I just need to you know, look at my Fitbit. It says 1500 calories. I'm just going to eat this. And then at the end of the day, I didn't lose any weight. What happened? And people cannot grapple with this fact that, you know, digestion comes into play and, and all that sort of thing. And even just the fact that their Fitbit isn't accurate the majority of the time. So I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about this and why calories in and calories out just isn't that simple. Mm, I, I absolutely love that you've picked up on that quote. It's, uh, it's, um, 
basically the first section this year, 2019, I did a tour and did Australia and, and New Zealand and Dubai and, and many cities in the UK. And that, that exact quote that you've picked out is like section one of the tour. So it's super cool that you've asked me to speak about it because it's um, something that I think is so helpful for people to understand. And when I did that post, it kind of created a, not a backlash, but a lot of like discussion of just like just an unfolding of people's minds. So yes, it is. We we know if we bring it back to the rawest form of kind of thermodynamics, which is just this thing mm. of like if you think of your body as a bank account, if there's more money going out than in, you can, it's as simple as that when we talk about the energy stored in your body and your body energy can be stored as fat or as you know protein in your muscle which is a lot harder to store and it doesn't accumulate as easily and carbohydrates a much smaller form in your muscle and your liver so we can go back to that but then if, as you've rightly said that humans and human behavior and your nutrition it makes it all so much more complex so the and i kind of talk about the the idea of energy in and um it kind of makes some kind of jokes around that in terms of you know, just because you put it in your mouth doesn't make it calories in. And the the idea that you can look at the back of a packet and go, it has X number of calories. So we, if you take nuts, for example, that we have kind of almonds and cashew nuts, etc. that when we look at the actual energy that we're able to absorb, so you have to eat it, you have to consume it, you have to be able to digest it, and then you have to be able to absorb it. So I'm sure you've worked with people who things like um, Crohn's, and and you see if someone has a real inflammatory problem in their um, digestive tract, they can't absorb those calories, so they lose so much weight so quickly. So you have these kind of gurus online saying, oh, the reason you're not losing weight is because your gut's inflamed. It's like, no, it's the other way around. If someone has an inflamed gut and then you give them you know, medication, prednisolone, or you, you, you help them, they'll put the weight back on. So it, it, it's so, you know, if we talk about just say pure sugar and then we compare that to almonds, like for like, there is a difference in the calories in. If you're comparing it based on, uh, and I, I don't know if this is teaching people to suck eggs, but how calories are, are calculated, we're essentially, I'll make it really simple. You just burn it, just take something and burn it. And then the energy that releases and how much that heats up water, your body doesn't work like that. The problem is, is you then get the flip side of this of people going, you know, it, it is our best method. I don't want to tell people that calories are irrelevant and don't work because look, there are people out there trying to mislead people and say, do my special plan because it's nothing to do with calories and I'll detoxify <laughs> your cells or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, but at the same time, yeah, this, this digestion factor, it makes small differences. And then you then flip that on its head and they aren't game changing differences. I don't want anyone to demonize any particular food because of, of what I've said. You can eat these highly palatable foods. Like I am known for loving pick and mix. And I don't think that translates to most other countries, America and Australia, like lollies in, in Australian, but pick and mix is just a variety of sweets. And I just love sweeties. I'm a bit of a kid. Um, so I'm, I'm not against these things, but just an understanding of, it, again, you can look at the pro, the whole um, whole grains versus fully processed refined grains, and there is a slight difference in the number of calories. And the reason this is probably happening is to do with the the fibrous matrix in these foods, and we are unable to fully get the the calories out of them. Flip this on its head to the energy outside of things. It's a dynamic system we're looking at. So, so often people go, well, human bodies aren't just a car engine. We don't just drive and burn petrol and then put it back in. We don't, And it's like, no, we don't. But if you understand the seesaw, the energy in, the energy out, we understand what affects energy in, we have to be able to absorb it. We have to be able to digest it. Some things we don't fully digest, they go further. You, you look at the energy out portion and, you know, you mentioned the Fitbit. And we all know how you can trick a Fitbit. You, all different ways that you can just, I mean, I don't know if you, there's certain insurance companies now that will like use your steps and give you points and give you discounts on your premiums. And people are attaching their Fitbit to their dog <laughs> and then like sending the dog to do their steps. And it's like, you're only, you know, you cheat yourself if yeah. you're saving some money, but you know, don't cheat yourself if you're trying to get healthy. Um, but yeah, so 
something like a Fitbit. And we know that there are subconscious changes in our behavior. So these aren't things of going, I'm on a diet, I'm going to be lazy. These are subconscious. It's even stuff like how expressive you are when you talk, your postural control, all of these different things to the, to the amount you fidget, moving your fingers, tapping your feet. These are what we call non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Lots of people are kind of much more aware of this now, the, the kind of neat area. And um, that will go down subconsciously when you try to restrict calories. So people go, well, you shouldn't ever restrict calories um, because then you're, these things are going to slow down. And then it's like, well, if you don't restrict calories to a point where you're in a deficit or increase expenditure, then you're not going to lose body fat. And if that's something that is a goal of yours or maybe somewhat of a necessity for certain clinical conditions, um, it's not going to be the case. Then they go, oh, you shouldn't restrict calories. You should do this special diet. Well, all diets that lead to fat loss put you in a calorie deficit. There's, there's nothing special about counting or not counting. Um, so yeah, does that, is that an okay answer? Yeah, of course, of course. And I'd love to t um, touch a little bit more on... Um, I guess we'll start with the Fitbit and um, the fitness watches and that mm. sort of thing, because as you said, there's many different ways to cheat it. But the amount of times I, I see people or they write to me a message on DM and they say, you know, my Fitbit says to eat, you know, 2,500 calories. I'm doing that. I'm not losing weight. Even just the methods of how they calculate these requirements from yeah. these Fitbits, can we go down that route a little mm. bit? Because I think people yeah. sort of think, oh, it's a piece of wearable technology. Of course it has to be accurate. Like it's amazing. It's mm. 2019. I'm going to take that, you know, exactly as it says, <laughs> yeah. and I'm going to try and do that exactly, and then nothing happens. Or they've overshot or yeah. they've massively undershot yeah. maybe. Um, yeah, th th that's a funny one. And it, where to even start with this? I think there's this thing of like people don't realise that even with giving – certain data so to to help people understand a bit these these technologies the calculators online that you can use they all use predictive so it's a prediction like bear that in mind equations so this is an estimation of an average and and your your stats are plugged into something so if you can perfectly measure i mean even with some of the elite athletes i worked with they they would use power taps on on um, their kind of what bikes or power taps on their their um, their road bikes, etc. Even if you go to that extent, you still find it very struggle to get an accurate reading of this whole energy balance equation. But a Fitbit is based on just these really broad brushstroke scenarios, like you just said, massively overshoot, massively undershoot, depending on your age and weight and gender and personal genetic genetic disposition to certain things. Um, so I personally would never use their output. The one thing that I would say is useful is to draw a line in the sand. For instance, with regards to steps, if you put this on, they are, they are wildly inaccurate with how many steps you do, but they are tend to be systematically. So there's random error and there's systematic error. So random error, we just can't trust it at all. It's completely erratic. Whereas systematic error, it might be for you as an individual, overestimating or underestimating your calories or your steps, your expenditure, but at least it's consistent. So you therefore know, okay, I started a new job. I just have a little look on my wrist. Oh my goodness. In my old job, I used to do 8,000 steps a day. Now I seem to only be doing 4,000. You can be fairly sure that you are less active now, <laughs> but you can't go, oh, I'm going to eat this X number of less calories because this is perfect science. It just isn't. And so I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't be using those for making accurate predictions. The other thing just to touch on is the fact that we as humans are also imperfect. So you might think you're eating 2,000 calories a day. It's almost certain that you're not. And I always like to say to people, even though you might scan it and put it into my fitness pal, doesn't mean that it's accurate because, and I, I don't know about the laws where you are, but even in Australia, food companies can be up to 20%, um, you know, away from what they're putting on that food label can be inaccurate by up to 15, 20%. And then same as what we talked about, the digestibility of food. You know, there's been some research that have shown that um, if you're eating nuts and up to 15% of those calories may not be absorbed because of the fibrous content, that sort of thing. So there is so much more that goes into this whole energy balance concept that I think people realize and just looking at that Fitbit and scanning a food label into my fitness pal. Mm, yeah, 100%. And just to just to build on what you said there, with regards to a 
pragmatic approach to this and and trying to kind of help some of the listeners who are maybe hearing this and going, well, what should I do then? Well, my main thing is to, and it, it, it's so simple, but it's people just do not do this because of the types of lives we live. But if you can create some level of consistency in your lifestyle and your eating habits, you don't have to become a monk. I'm 100% not one of these people who prepares all of his meals ahead of time. And kept, you know, that used to be me as a bodybuilder. Thank goodness I got a life. Um, but uh, I, having some consistency in the types of foods you eat maybe the times of day you eat, the rough proportions you eat, uh, uh, portions you eat. If you do that and then you have something to move, you know, left or right, up or down from, rather than just this numbers game, which ignores everything else like you've just said in terms of you scan a packet and it's it's super inaccurate. If you're if you scan that packet and you ha- you eat the same packaged foods every single day, that even is a better level of consistency than a ram- random packaged goods. So you can you could go right. I'm eating. I mean, this is a crazy scenario, but it makes my point well. You're eating seven packaged goods over your day, whatever that is, a fruit bag and you know a ready meal here and a, a porridge pot here. You know, you remove some of that. You've almost certainly removed some calories from your day. That's, you know, that's not advice. That's just making the point that you have some consistency without a doubt, if you were 100% maintaining your weight, and then we've got the whole can of worms of is weight a good predictor of actual fat loss. But anyway, <laughs> you will, you, if you were maintaining your weight, you're now eating less calories and you will start to lose some energy, highly likely from body fat from your body. Definitely. I think it's a good example because I think what it really does come down to is consistency. And I think what a lot of people do is they want to diet for a week and they're like, oh my God, I went so hardcore for a week. I didn't lose anything. I'm so pissed off. I'm going to, you know, what's the point even? And they just don't have that consistency. But I think the message, I think we both agree on and want to drive home is that that need for consistency. So even if you're doing something and it's not working, that's the best kind of feedback that you can get because you need to change it up a little bit. And it doesn't mean reverting back to your old crappy habits. It just means doing something maybe 10, 15% different or taking one extra snack out or adding one extra snack in if you're losing too much weight. But I think what people don't have and what it really boils down to is that consistency mm. with their good habits, isn't it? Uh, yeah, 100%. If it's being able to know what's come before and therefore adapting and moving forward from that. Like like you just said, don't jump back to your erratic old school thing or, or whatever you were doing before or revert to your previous habits. Like you said, 10 to 15% move in the direction of where you're trying to go. Mm, definitely. And I think I'd love to um, turn this conversation around in, and sort of talk about, I guess, the concept of damaged metabolisms. Because again, mm. I get a lot of people messaging me and it's like, I've done this, I'm not losing weight, I'm doing all the right things, blah, 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 blah. My metabolism's damaged. And I mm. feel like people almost use it as like a cop-out excuse. And I know that we were talking about um, sort of neat and thermogenesis and that yep. sort of thing before. So can we talk a little bit about damaged metabolisms and how a lot of people, I guess, use that as a bit of an excuse, but then they there is a way that you can sort of slow down your metabolism, definitely, particularly you've been, um, I guess, maybe someone recovering from an eating disorder or something like that. Yeah. So starvation mode, let's start there because people will talk about that. Starvation mode and metabolic damage. Like starvation mode is not a defined term, ergo it almost certainly doesn't exist. But we do know that something that is academically qualified and we have measured is the starvation response so we know that in individuals who have that the body has a starvation response to very low calories very low body fat but starvation mode because it's this made-up thing people call make up all sorts of things like if you skip a meal your body goes into shock and the next time you eat it and it like becomes this thing of uh, just a cartoon of what happens in your body. <laughs> so the starvation response, we know that these things, and so in the literature, it's called um, adaptive thermogenesis. Uh, in the kind of maybe mainstream Instagram areas, you might hear people talk about metabolic adaptation, but it's not metabolic damage. So one of the common myths, and actually I suppose even from some of my um maybe more astute or well-read or qualified followers, they, there's still this idea around yo-yo dieting. I, th- I think in general, 
people have a very negative feeling towards yo-yo dieting because it's typically linked to lots of negative things. However, the the literature shows us that people who um, yo-yo diet, and this is kind of time and time again, once they they lose weight and then they put back on weight. Once they go back to that original weight, their metabolism is not damaged. Their metabolism is no slower than it was before. The the time when your metabolism does slow down is when you are weight reduced. So we know in weight reduced individuals, we have all of these adaptations that we can talk a bit about more. But the idea that, oh, you know, over the years I've done these different diets and now I'm just broken and I just can't do anything and it's not my fault or I can't do it. A really key part of that, as you said, is this excuse. And that's not to be mean to anyone because I have people messaging me saying, you know, I had, you know, I have thyroid cancer or I have hype and my thyroid was removed or I have hypothyroidism. And I'll speak to them and say, you know, oh, what food should I eat for hypothyroidism? And I say, there's no specific foods. It's irrelevant. Oh, okay, cool. What, how should I change my calories or what should I do differently? And I say, are you medicated? Yes. Are your TSH levels and are all your thyroid hormone levels normal? Is your doctor happy? Oh yeah, I feel great. Um, you know, all of the, the the fatigue, the hair, this, all these different things, the constipation, it's all gone. Oh right, okay, you're the same as everyone else. What? Yeah, yeah. You can. You just now need a calorie deficit to lose weight. But why is it so hard then? Because it's hard for everyone. That's why. But <laughs> yeah. you. But when it gets hard for you, you have this this crutch, this excuse to go. It's harder for me than anyone else. And I talk a lot in my talk about owning your genetics, owning your deck of cards, owning the, the hand that you've been dealt. The, the, the genetic differences are profound between humans in terms of how they react to calorie surplus or calorie deficit, um, how our appetites are tuned. They, these are things that could either be used as excuses or just an acceptance you know, if you are if you are someone who has the FTO gene, we know that this is correlated with higher appetite and and higher body weights. So you can own that, but there's no point in taking these stupid DNA tests that go, oh, you know, for a start, let's. I know this isn't your question, but I'm just going to say it. DNA tests saying usually this many grams of carbs or whatever that is not a thing. That is a fad. Don't waste your money. Mm-hmm. The one positive thing that you can get from these, and I say positive, probably in inverted commas, is. It can tell you if you have this FTO gene. But imagine going to them going, oh, I'm really struggling with losing weight. Right, what should I do? Oh, my friend had a DNA test. Right, I'm going to go take the DNA test. Your results show that your appetite is higher than your friend's and um, you'll probably struggle to lose weight. Yeah, tell me something I don't know. That's why I came for this DNA test. You'd give me the magic pill. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, with regards to this kind of having an excuse can be damaging. And by owning it and going, and hopefully listen to this podcast and following you, Leanne, someone will be able to go, oh, okay, that isn't a thing. What is the factor that's stopping me? Is it the fact that I was using it as an excuse? Is it the fact that, yeah, do you know what? I've not been completely honest with myself with regards to tracking calories. And something that I've, I, I spoke up in some of my tour talks was when someone has dieted previously, if they have followed a fad, if they have, um, been led down the wrong road, if they have maybe demonized certain foods, for instance, they can, it can lead to binging tendencies, a poor relationship with food. And until you actually realize how much of a massive impact a binging episode, you know, people sometimes trying to wrap them up in the term cheat meal, treat meal, uh, metabolism boosting meal, whatever, the damage, and when I say damage, I mean towards your overall goal of potentially having a calorie deficit for fat loss, that it is huge. Mm-hmm. And you can put the numbers together. Like, how easy is it to eat six, 7,000 calories? Like, how many calories in like a big bar of galaxy? There's someone go, oh, I could eat three of those. You know, how many go to an all you can eat pizza thing? You can consume so many calories. Okay, now I'm going to ask you to to diet on a 500 calorie deficit for 30 days and you have to be 100% consistent how many calorie deficit are you in 15,000 calorie deficit right how many days can you undo 30 days work probably two or three for a lot of people I've got a really small appetite and I am kind of thankful in this modern day and age for that but some people have phenomenal appetites um and so 
just this understanding. So this yo-yo dieting thing, why do I find it so hard to lose weight? Maybe because you've screwed up your relationship with food and you're using food to medicate in terms of your feelings of happiness or, um, you know, all of these different things. And therefore you can't make progress anymore because actually you need to fix maybe your relationship with food, fix your psychology around food. Definitely. And I'm going to bring you back and we're going to go, um, I want to ask you about with um, metabolic adaption that, and that sort of thing. So when people lose weight and consistency over, you know, a couple of weeks, couple of months, they have what are, you know, these metabolic adaptions where the mm. body sort of tries to conserve a little bit of this energy. And so what would you say is the best way? As a prime example, you know, somebody might lose five or 10 kilos and then their weight loss sort of stalls and they mm. go, oh, but I'm doing exactly the same thing. I'm exercising the exact same amount. I'm eating the exact same amount of food. What am I doing wrong? And people either go one of two ways. They adapt and do things a little bit differently or they revert mm. back to their old habits. They lose that motivation. They put it all back on again. So if somebody's going down that yo-yo dieting road and they know they've been there before, when they hit that plateau, what are your words of wisdom to help them to push through and keep going? Are you mm. someone that um, you know recommends increasing NEAT? that sort of thing to to counterbalance some of those metabolic adaptions mm. yeah so there's a few different things here so where shall i start the i'll start with your example yes the we know that through like as i mentioned earlier about these subconscious reduction in metabolic uh in sorry non-exercise activity thermogenesis etc and i've actually coined the term so we've most people or lots of people have heard of neat I've actually coined the term NINAT. So if, if people talk about these, this is kind of unplanned movement, unplanned exercise. But if you were to go shopping and you're like, oh, I'm just going to buy you know, these clothes and then I'm just going to buy this some sugar-free fizzy drinks that are on offer. I'm going to buy six liters. And you walk around carrying these. That is neat. And that will burn loads of calories carrying kilos and kilos of shopping bags and around the shops for hours and hours on end. And realistically, to me, that looks like strongman training. That's like farmer's <laughs> walk training. But on the flip side, sitting here and, and kind of scratching my head and tapping my feet, that's also neat. And those you can see are starkly different scenarios. So NINAT, I call it, is non-exercise and non-activity thermogenesis. So NINAT. So that is the fidgeting, the postural stuff. The subconscious stuff that, in my opinion, you could just can't, you can't really counteract. But the other stuff you can, and this is again where Fitbits and, and Apple Watches and step counters can come in. If you start your diet and you're doing 10,000 steps a day, or you, you start your diet and you're doing six, but you increase that to 10, and look, it's led to some weight loss. And then you're happy with that, but you lose whatever you said, five or 10 kilos. And I will say this for listeners, once you've lost 10% of your body weight, so I don't know what you guys use, but Use kilo, use kilos in, in kilos, Australia, yeah. right? So let's say you weighed 80 kilos. And if you were then 70 kilos, you have lost more than 10% of your body weight. 10% um, would be eight kilos of 80 kilos. So once you get to 72, 71, 70, you will have a significant degree of metabolic adaptation. The problem is, is the variation between different individuals is huge. And females mm -hmm. and, and, and older females tend to have a higher degree of metabolic adaptation. Um, but you know at that point, if that's you, oh my goodness, if you're sitting there listening and you're like, oh my goodness, that's exactly me he's just described and I've plateaued on my weight loss. We could be discussing you right now. And the, your main line of defense or, or main line of attack, actually, sorry, is counteract some of the adaptation, which is start looking at your steps, start looking at your movement. Where it, where can you just get more calories burned? Don't necessarily start smashing you know, yourself in the gym because one of the issues with certain levels of exercise intensity is they can actually upregulate appetite. Um, and again, <laughs> that is gen a genetic thing. Some people it doesn't happen for, we all hate them. Um, <laughs> and some people it does. So it, it, and this is all that consistency stuff, knowing yourself, owning your genetic um, set of cards. So yes, start doing more neat. You can try doing a little bit more planned exercise to try and that side of the energy out equation. You can then also go, right, maybe I need to restrict more calories. Because the other thing for me, which is crazy, but I'm that, you know, that's maybe a bit harsh because some people aren't trained in nutrition. But if you weigh 10 kilograms less, 
you're a smaller human being. You burn less calories. Imagine putting a backpack on your back that weighed 10 kilos and walking around all day. You'd be exhausted. That was the old you. So not only when we say metabolic adaptation, that's you lose energy expended just through weighing less. And then the adaptation is this thing that's even beyond that, just simply weighing less. If you think of your old 70 kilo self, you're burning less calories than your old 70 kilo less uh, self by uh, you know a degree because of this metabolic adaptation. So um, I've, I don't know if you've seen this um, on Instagram, Leanne, but people now wearing weight vests and every pound or every kilo they lose, basically putting it back in. Have you seen this? I think I've seen it um, more like the CrossFitters running around with weight vests on. I'm not sure if I've seen it from okay, a pure yeah. weight loss perspective. Yeah, so um, uh, James Krieger did a comp prep with one of his clients and had him do it. He wore 20 wore the vest 23 hours a day um, and just I think he took wow. off for an hour of a training and um, so it's just bizarre it's really really interesting concept um, he even wore it through security and you think you can imagine what a vest like that looks like and he's got <laughs> kind of quite dark skin and stuff and I was like oh my goodness this is amazing but apparently he just went I'm a researcher and he's not a researcher he was just a client and it was like man what that's it he's brave um, so that was quite funny to see that online but anyway so you can try and undermine that. Um, you can try and undermine the, the metabolic adaptation in that way, and then you can go to the extent, which is one of these sad truths of fat loss: is you might have to look at ways that you can change what you're eating so that you're consuming less calories. So you might choose things that are uh, are you know swapping starchy carbohydrate for a more fibrous carbohydrate so that you're trying to maintain the food volume what your plate looks like what your stomach feels like eating that meal but it'll have less calories um changing the way you're cooking so you might be eating uh chicken thighs you might then chick to stick uh, switch sorry to chicken breasts and that will reduce the calories through less um fat all these different ways you could you could try and and I call it spontaneous calorie reduction. You could try and do things that just make you generally eat less, which is eat more protein. If you're not eating um, much already, that can reduce twenty four hour appetite and therefore twenty four hour energy intake. So for me, that's that. Those are the there's lots of different areas you can choose depending on where you're at and what you're currently doing to try and then push forward into that next stage. Mm, definitely such great tips there I love it and I think that, again what people do is they get so frustrated and they sort of don't know where to go like they get oh I know this works and I know this works and I do this exact amount of exercise and again do you find that people tend to flog themselves in the gym but then sort of don't even give nutrition a second thought like they're like oh well I'm doing seven workout classes a week but I'll just try and increase my exercise whereas it's sort of like well if you just do some really small things around nutrition as you said maybe choose one or two more whole food options or maybe leave a couple of bites on your plate and maybe just look at you know, eating until you're 80% full instead of 100% full, just some really small tips like that, really focused around nutrition, rather than trying to just continuously flog yourself in the gym, because the more weight you lose, the more those, you're going to get some of those smaller metabolic adaptions as well. And people get to the point where they're like, I physically can't exercise anymore. Yeah. So I think this is this thing of, there's this kind of phrase about, oh, you can't ex out-exercise a bad diet. And it's funny when I hear that phrase from someone who's worked with elite athletes, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you really can out-exercise. <laughs> but can. that's only when it's your profession. <laughs> um, when you're lots, you know, most of our clients over the years would have, uh, non-athlete athlete clients would have had relatively sedentary jobs and that you're right there's not enough time in the day they you do your seven classes a week but that's you know, one hour or two hours you these athletes who are eating the most ridiculous eating apps what, what they want you know seven eight thousand calories a day and but they're training that much all the time so whereas you can make huge impacts in um you know, the energy balance equation with focusing on your nutrition. So yes, uh, and it is nice to see, Insta, you know, a small Instagram movement of, you know, do exercise that you enjoy because you, you know, you need to be doing something that you're going to want to maintain long-term from an exercise perspective. Exercise is not well in the, in the literature. Exercise is not well correlated with weight loss outcomes, but it is very well correlated with weight maintenance maintenance of weight loss mm -hmm. so 
and this is maybe a controversial statement, but don't believe that people need to make lifelong changes for weight loss. They need to do something they can stick to for their weight loss. So they can't do something they can only stick to for a day, but they need to do something they can stick to whilst they're on this journey of weight loss. Because once they go back to maintenance, they might want to eat slightly differently. They might want to change the number of meals they eat per day. They might want to change the types of foods that they're eating to elicit the goal of weight maintenance. But with exercise, you just have to, like, yeah, you can obviously change your exercise type, but you can't go, I'm going to lose weight by going to the gym 14 times a week, two hours before work and two, two hours after work. Because unless, yeah, you're happy to do that for the rest of your life. Because then as soon as you stop that, it is honestly game over. <laughs> um, so exercise, it needs to be sustainable. And, and therefore, I honestly would just be picking something you enjoy. All these conversations about what's best, what's worse, what's optimal, it is irrelevant um, other than maybe weight training. Um, can I talk a little bit about weight training? Yeah, of course you can. I'm a huge advocate for it, particularly for females as well. Well, obviously Amazing. for males, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And But sometimes females shy away from it. Yeah. yeah. Um, just, it's a very small snippet I want to just say, other than all of the amazing health benefits. Um, and, you know, for the kind of, I did a, a talk on the perimenopausal um, female diet and, and maybe some of the things around that. But one of the big factors in that area is bone mineral density and, and obviously weight training mm -hmm. and impact stuff being great. But the thing I wanted to just mention, because we've mentioned NEAT, on this podcast, there is some evidence to suggest that during a hypocaloric diet, a calorie deficit diet, if you do weight training, heavy weight training, and heavy is a very relative term. Often people can get scared away when you use the word heavy. It's heavy for you. If you can only bicep curl a one kilogram dumbbell 10 times and then you can do it no more, that is heavy. And that's for you relative. That's resistance training. Um, if you do that during a calorie deficit diet, it may be that it um, attenuates, so reduces the reduction in NEAT that is associated with dieting. So if you were going to adapt a certain amount and you were going to lose this many calories from your general daily movement subconsciously, by doing weight training whilst you're on a diet, it might reduce that amount. Ergo, you'll hit your plateau later for instance. So re a really, really positive thing. So I know I just said do stuff you enjoy, but even if you don't enjoy weights, maybe force yourself uh, because you, you probably don't, you know, weight training is not a calorie burn exercise. Um, do other movement, fun movement, sports for that kind of calorie burning, walking, etc. But weight training has all these other profound benefits, even from the thing of gaining a little bit of muscle. And we know that that's highly likely very good for staving off um, some of the kind of blood glucose dis dysregulation that happens with aging and, and as we get much older. So through the lifestyle, doing some form of resistance. It doesn't have to be in a gym with, you know, but doing something that works your muscles hard. Definitely. Yep. Huge advocate as well. Now, I think I can't, or I know I can't get you on this podcast without obviously talking about the Netflix, the Game Changers, <laughs> should we call it a movie um, on Netflix, which yeah, I think I got about yeah. maybe halfway in and I was like, I actually can't watch this anymore. So full disclosure, yeah. I haven't actually watched it to the end, <laughs> but I'm getting so many questions and I'm seeing so much, particularly online about just the different messages. I'm all for a whole food plant-based diet, if that's something that you want to do. But I think a lot of the messaging in that movie was um, quite inaccurate. So I'd love to get your thoughts around yeah. pr probably the first statement that a lot of people are comparing is that, you know, um, broccoli has as much protein as steak. So can you help me miss bust that one, please, Martin? This, this one, I, I just, it's, it's almost too much. It's almost laughable. It's like, it's a joke. It's like someone's going to jump out. Um, it's just simply not true. Uh, it's, it's very hard, you know, oh, okay, Martin, quote, quote a study that shows this isn't true. I can't do that. The same way I can't quote a study that shows pigs don't, don't fly. It's just a bizarre, ridiculous statement that isn't a fact. We know, we, you know, you can test this in a lab really simply. How much protein is in, you know, 100 grams of broccoli? Maybe approximately, or like less than three grams. How much protein is, is in steak? Almost 10 times that amount. There's no question of this fact. That doesn't make steak a better food than broccoli. It just means it definitely has more protein, um, a di different amino acid profile, etc. So I think the thing 
I know why people can say this without losing too much sleep, even though they know they are misleading people. And I think what they're trying to say is calorie for calorie, if you were to eat a very fatty steak, if you matched the number of calories, so if you did per 100 calories, you could argue that, oh, if we were both eating 2,000 calories a day and we ate it all from steak and I ate all of my 2,000 calories from broccoli, I'd get more protein. But this is just a ridiculous scenario that isn't the case. Like, okay, I want to get 30 grams of protein. Right, I'm going to eat roughly 100 grams of steak. You're going to eat roughly a kilogram of broccoli. No one wants to do that. And if you do, fair play to you. But it doesn't mean, you know, I'm now I want to have 200 grams of protein. Good luck eating a truckload of broccoli. So it's it's laughable. It's just silly. Um I don't know what else to say. And there are definitely better ways in getting protein in, I think, on a plant-based diet than using broccoli as your protein source as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't even need to eat broccoli for protein. You've got loads of other plant-based sources. <laughs> definitely. And I think the next one that grinds me a little bit, particularly um, in Australia, because we actually do have, I believe, like some of the best dairy industries in Australia. Like we have some really, really good, um, you know, farmers and that sort of thing. So dairy and inflammation was another one that I just see people showing literature, like, you know, dairy is inflammatory, dairy is, you know, full of pus, that sort of thing. I get it from it. Like this is not talking about an ethical, you know, standpoint at all. Yeah. I'm purely just wanting to know the the research and the science around dairy and inflammation, not regarding the ethical issues at the moment. No, yeah. <laughs> so this this was a key one when I when I first did some posts about this, and there was some interesting research done. I, I was over in Barcelona doing some talks, and I just happened to mention this during a Q and A panel I was running. And that there was a really interesting study that looked at religious fasts where they, where they fast purely from animal products. And they, you know, what a perfect scenario with very highly compliant subjects to look at the impact of reducing specifically animal, dairy, egg products from the diet and what it will do to health. And essentially showed no benefit of doing so. And what we, we, what we know quite profoundly and it's not a sexy message is eat more vegetables eat more plant-based foods eat more legumes eat more fruits this is what tends to make people healthier people who eat boatloads of meat are either in a calorie surplus which potentially isn't good for them and are swapping out these plant-based foods for these for these kind of very homogenous groups of food lots of chicken lots of beef lots of turkey whatever and not necessarily eating these other good things. So I did. I, I said about this, and then people go, yeah, but dairy, you can't defend dairy. Dairy's inflammatory, and that's a fact, full stop. Uh, oh, interesting fact. Why don't you just provide a reference? So I did a whole post on this, uh, and, you know, there is good literature on this. This is being studied, and um, <laughs> basically dairy is actually related to fairly anti-inflammatory effects. If, it's very strong if you look at fermented dairy. Um, when studies look at, so I basically talk about meta-analyses meta and systematic reviews rather than single studies because different studies have different strengths and weaknesses. But when, when in these meta-analyses, when it discusses the studies that don't show an anti-inflammatory effect of dairy, the effect is neutral. So it's not jumping to the other side. It's not the complete opposite. And however, if you have dairy, you know, milk protein allergy, dairy allergies, it's inflammatory. We know that. That's obvious. It's a, it's an allergy that you've got. It's going to happen with, you know, if you've got a peanut allergy, et cetera. So um, it's just a farce. It's, it's not evidence-based. Um, you are 100% right to keep mentioning that about the ethical thing. I have no, absolutely no qualms with someone doing it for ethical stuff. And I even think as a personally a health-seeking omnivore, you can make good choices around that. And you, you are right, again, the UK and Australia has, has better farming practices than, than America and, and you know, lots of other countries around the world. So we are lucky with where we live, but even where, no matter where you are, you can make better choices with regards to animal welfare. Yeah, 100% agree. And I think that the thing that I, I guess, dislike the most about online is that that fear mongering or they try to fear people into choosing something else rather than if you like dairy, a small amount of, you know, fermented dairy or, or Greek yogurt or that sort of thing, or a dash of actual milk in your coffee, because mm. 
almond milk kind of tastes like us is, <laughs> is absolutely fine and it's not going to kill you. But I just hate the fact that people think that it, they're putting all this inflammation into their body. And it's like, have you looked at the you know, truck ton of processed foods you're putting into your body, that's going to give you more inflammation than anything else. So I think it's just being a little bit more realistic about it. And if you like it, then you can eat it. If you don't or you choose not to, then that's perfectly fine as well. But it's not as black and white as what people make out on social Mm. media, is it? Oh, yeah, agreed. Mm. And then the last one in, that I quick, keep getting um, messages about, and I don't think I watch far enough into Game Changers to to see this one, was something about this serum lipid levels. Um, so like a, a fatty bit of meat was elevated your serum lipid levels just as much as um, I think it was like a vegan meal or something or much more than a vegan meal. Mm. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. do, yeah. So this is, again, like to be frank, People need to understand that this is Netflix. Netflix is made for entertainment, not for science. It's not peer-reviewed. It's not governed. It's not fact-checked. Humans are imperfect. They go, oh, well, they had a doctor on there. And it's like, well, for a start, doctors aren't trained in nutrition. Like, put a dietitian on there. Put put a nutritionist on there who's actually gone to university and studied this stuff. So that's the first thing. But then even if you do, humans are imperfect, you can find a dietitian or nutritionist who may have incorrect views or extremist views because of a personal belief or personal experience. But anyway, that's by the by. This is Netflix. Um, They had an agenda. We know that there's lots of conflicts of interest with what they were doing. And as as I understand, they basically fed a meal and looked at the blood and basically lied. So we know that the response of... So there's something called... If people want to fact-check me, Log on to Google Scholar or PubMed, type in postprandial lipemia or the postprandial lipemic response. There's actually a study that was like, it's only six months old. So this is like almost the most up-to-date study in this area. And they did exactly this. They took different um, fat sources. So obviously, if you're going to compare the response of your body and the way fat appears in the blood to put it in layman's terms if you give no fat it's going to be different but if you give plant fat and animal fat and you know in this study i think they use like butter which is like the devil animal (laughs) fat like super high in palmitic acid this super bad you know i'm saying bad in inverted commas but you know if you eat boatloads of palmitic acid it's actually not very good for you um and then i think they compared it to like olive oil and maybe coconut oil sorry there was four sources anyway the point being that they're the same and it's if you compare something that has no fat and loads of fat there will be a difference but actually your body doesn't distinguish the source of those we're going down to you know monounsaturated polyunsaturated fat and uh, polymono polymono and saturated fat but then within those different subgroups you have different different fatty acids that are even part of the um saturated fat for instance so you have you know the the mysteric acid and these things have different effects in your body and so we eat food let's you know let's bring it back to that for a start but there's no difference if you're eating a high fat meal from wherever it is it's the fatty acids contained within that and actually we are super it's it's almost obvious how to be super healthy we can look at the healthiest people in the world in the blue zones these people are not vegans, but they do eat a plant-based, not plant-centric, but plant-based. They eat mostly veg- or mostly foods that come from plant sources, i.e. nuts, legumes, fruits, vegetables, the grains. But they also are happy to eat dairy, fish, meat. Um, they also get exercise and live stress-free lives without Instagram and Netflix documentaries, <laughs> but they're probably are what killing us all. Anyway, so yeah, it's it's just a fast that thing. It was just a, a really sciencey way of, of kind of trying, in my opinion, to pull the wool over people's eyes, or they're just completely misguided on any on doing proper science. 
Mm. And I did hear that the the makers of that film own like a vegan supplement company as well, mm. which I think, yeah. yeah, so quite a lot of conflicts of interest as well. And as you said, <laughs> like I'm definitely not against a plant-based vegan diet, but I agree with you. I think people need to eat a lot more plants and have a lot more plant-based meals in their diet, but they don't have to go the entire plant-based if they if that's something that they choose not to do. But a lot of times mm. on social media, they're sort of, it's either you're 100% in the vegan camp or you're 100% out of the vegan camp. And just people scaring other people into doing that isn't a great way to help other people change is it no yeah no definitely not i think it's it doesn't there's lots of initiatives you can do to start being more plant-based without ever even having to utter the word veganism mm, definitely um, and other things that you can do to sort of help the planet as well we're not going to go down that route <laughs> now <laughs> yeah. i'd love to get your thoughts around um artificial sweeteners because there's a lot of talk mm. that you know if you have too much artificial sweeteners i'm not a fan of them purely from a gut health perspective i find that i work with a lot of clients around gut health and bloating and that sort of thing i find that some people of my sensitive clients don't digest them as well but irrespective oh. from the gut health um i guess point of view artificial sweeteners and i guess tricking your metabolism into thinking that it's sugar and being bad and storing fat and that sort of thing i'm sure that you've seen it and yeah. heard it online as well yeah so there, there are there's lots of different areas I, I suppose the thing for people to realize is when we talk about artificial sweeteners there's there's different types um with regards to you can go down the route of kind of polyols sugar alcohol areas which then our our body is actually able to ferment some of these and then just like you've said that can give people really bad bloating and and gas Um, and the way you can do this yourself i actually did this when i was competing in bodybuilding here's an admission for you i don't think i've ever said this publicly i was doing (laughs) night shifts stacking shelves i was probably 20 19 20 years old and i was dieting for a bodybuilding show and I found these diabetic sweets in one of the aisles I was stacking. And obviously the calories when you have these sugar alcohols and polyols, it kind of changes stuff. So I ended up eating this whole family bag size of sweets. And so you can imagine the gastrointestinal distress that I got from doing <laughs> that at four o'clock in the morning when my whole circadian rhythms were out of whack and oh, it's crazy. Um, living off, you know, caffeine caffeinated beverages but anyway so it's also worth bearing in mind there are different artificial sweeteners so the the big one is like aspartame it's like or aspartame however people want to say it and it's like this is causing cancer or this is tricking your body to think that sugar was coming along and then when it doesn't come along your appetite massively upregulates or the the most ridiculous one that um i actually did a post on this because a guy called dr mark hyman did a post saying when you have artificial sweetness your body releases insulin in response to this and if any of your listeners have any family or friends who are diabetic ask them what would happen if they injected themselves with insulin but provided no carbohydrate to their body and the answer if anyone doesn't know is they'd go into diabetic coma and die so if you were drinking a you know a diet soft drink and it was pumping out insulin into your body, your blood glucose, the the action of that is to shuttle away your blood glucose, reduce your blood glucose, because the normal response of your pancreas is to eat carbohydrate, digest those into sugars, glucose, we release it, it stores it, we're good again. If you did that with an artificial sweetener, we'd just all be dead. Like, it's ridiculous. to. It's such a farcical thing for him to say, I cannot believe a doctor is saying this, but I know why, because he puts out so much bad information. So the what's the other thing? Yeah, this idea that it massively upregulates your hunger, that's not evidence-based. Um, if people say that, you don't have to believe me like I'm the Messiah or something. But next time you hear someone saying it, go, please, can you just post a single study, a randomized control trial, something that's peer-reviewed, not a YouTube video, <laughs> not a blog by, of someone's opinion, just a study where they actually measured these things and they won't be able to. Because um, these things are being tested. They are interesting. I'm not just saying this is rubbish. I'm super interested. I I want to know everything about artificial sweeteners and what they might be doing to us and they they are doing to us. I actually restrict my children's intake of artificial sweeteners. And lots of my evidence-based kind of followers, when I say that, like, no, like, no way, you're demonizing it. But actually, when you look at the taste perception research children are very hedonic they are just like 
they they act on every single like physiological urge that is in them they don't necessarily have you know what we gain as becoming adults i'm hungry i need to eat whereas oh i'm hungry i'm going to fast a bit longer for autophagy you know something ridiculous um but a child with hyper hyper sweet tastes they they actually become accustomed to those tastes and therefore you say to them okay do you want to eat your food and they go no because you're trying to feed me a potato and a potato does not taste anywhere as nice as that really strong orange drink that you give me before my meal or that you know this that fizzy drink so i they don't know what they are i let my children eat very broadly and lots of processed food when they're at kids parties but i i will try not to promote their consumption of artificial sweeteners because they are so much more sweet and it, and it does change taste perception um that I just don't think I need to be exposing them to do at this point. When they get older, they can make their own decisions. But when they're three and five, I'm going to do my best to just try and set a, a foundation for them to move forward. Mm, love it. So myth busted. And I guess that um, if anyone listening at home, like Martin's busting a lot of myths for us and he's sort of letting us know the evidence and the science around it, but it then doesn't mean that because it's not going to give you cancer or because it's not going to shoot your blood glucose levels up, you can then go and drink six litres of Diet Coke a day and that's going to be healthy. <laughs> yeah. So we're busting myths here, but at the same time, mm. same with, you know, a plant-based diet is going to be healthier for you, but just because, you know, meat might not be as bad, if you're going to eat truck tons of meat every single day again you're not going to be healthy so you've just got to take everything that we're saying with a grain of salt as well exactly. <laughs> just wanted to put that one out there don't make extremist decisions based on this it's just like most of i think what your message and my message is is about i don't like the word moderation because it doesn't have a set meaning but just a, but i do like the word balance with regards mm -hmm. to people's lifestyles and their eating habits so yeah don't go into the extreme end of eating based on anything that I always say today. Love it. <laughs> now, um, eating for your body type. Again, it's something I see constantly online. Um, what are your feelings and what does the research show us around eating for our body type? We're not even going to down the blood type route. We're okay. just going to stick with body type today. <laughs> Honestly, this is, it, you can, you can bracket the blood type in this because these are just archaic random, like blood type is even worse than body type. Yep. Um, there is, literally zero evidence on blood typing diets um i think there is one book that everyone quotes as their evidence and it's just some jokers made up rubbish that he wrote a book on um body type again your body type like people don't have body types your your the way your body is is like a transient point in time that you can change based on different habits and behaviors um there's there's no evidence like even looking at what a body type might mean with regards to your insulin resistance status and therefore your insulin resistance status and how you might eat in response to that there's not strong evidence of that so it is farcical that this um this is even a thing and people are still using it to give their macro percentages for their clients based on a body type it's <laughs> i don't know what to say like it, again it's a pig's fly show me a study martin that pigs i can't the same way I can't show you that body type diets are, I can't show you a randomized control trial to show you they're absolute rubbish because no researcher has ever been stupid enough to waste research money on studying such a thing. And that that's a <laughs> blunt way of putting it, but that's the truth. Mm. And I think what a lot of people forget is, as you said, like it's just a transient point in time as your body, because I have so many people who are like, oh, when I was 20, I could eat and drink whatever I wanted. It didn't matter. And now I'm 30, like all this weight comes on and it's like your body goes through different phases and hormones and that sort of thing as well. Whereas people think that all they, you know, I'm sure they come to you and they say, oh, I want to weigh X pounds or X kilos because it's what I weighed 15 years ago. And you're like, oh, great. That was 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. It, and people, their whole lives change. And it's, you know, if you had a body type, it's like, that's your type. It's not this what's happening now. It's, you wouldn't be able to get a different job and your whole body type changes. Like body type is not related. It's just, that's, for instance, body fatness. And that, that will change depending on our lifestyle and our behaviors around that. It's just, yeah, it's not a thing. Please don't do diets based on body type. So people are better off getting some personalized nutrition advice, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
Now, um, probably the last thing that I wanted to really ask you about was how the public can sort of sift through all the BS online. So besides following sort of, I guess, really great people that are evidence-based such as yourself and myself, how can people know if, you know, particularly somebody who's quite credible, say like a doctor is putting out actual facts or if it's just fear-mongering or they've just sort of got their own personal bias or anything like that? Like how did the public sift through that BS online? Honestly, this is pro- this is the hardest question you've asked me. It's a tough one. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to give it my best <laughs> shot, but it's I'm not even saying this is the right answer because what I want to say is it's flipping tough. And I think one recommendation, and I'm quite, I'm known for kind of being quite harsh to my followers, as in because I, it's almost like tough love. It's it's like I treat my children or my members of staff. It's like, if you do something wrong, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you in a loving way, and they might not come across in a loving way, but I do it with the best of intentions. So like my followers will tag <laughs> me and they'll say, follow Friday or whatever or tag your top three evidence-based nutrition accounts and it'll be like me and then the other people they've tagged are absolute morons and i'm like (laughs) why why don't you see the disparity between me and this person who's just a quack so then i'll like do this stuff and for me it's a case of you need to pay attention as soon as someone you know i'll have people say oh i follow you and so and so and you know his stuff on this area is a little bit out there, but he provides really good stuff around this that I think is good. And I say to them, how much time are you wasting sifting through his or her content? There's no need to sift. There are good people out there who are 100% of the time acting based on evidence-based principles. Also, evidence-based principles don't mean you're never wrong. But if you are acting based on you're willing to update your knowledge, based, so if you go to someone and go, can I have a reference? An evidence-based practitioner will be able to give you one or they'll go, do you know what? I don't know what I'm basing that on. Let me just double check myself. They might be right and they might come back like I have had to. And definitely in my 20s, this was a thing of going, oh my goodness, eating little and often does not boost your metabolism. And I didn't know that. And when I was a bodybuilder, that's what I was told and that's what I did. And you don't cover that in a degree because it's kind of just this by the by thing. So yeah, I think pay attention, pay good attention, clear your social media and your online stuff of just junk and then be slow. So, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you've got two people Look at people who have similar messages. Look at people who, you know, look at the list of people who come on this podcast and go, okay, this is a starting point for me. See where maybe they disagree. But most good people will di- will agree on like 99% of stuff. There might be slight nuances in the way they t- take things or the way they practice. If you hear someone who's just out there, remember this. If one person says, this is the answer and I've cracked it, that is basically them going, I know more than every other nutritionist, academic, dietitian, researcher on the planet, and I'm the man. And if they say that, it's like you're basically believing in a messiah of nutrition. And mm-hmm. if you want to go, you know, be this, have some zealot-like fervor for this person, fine, go and do it. But you're going down the wrong path. No one's got the magic answer. And if they say they do, 99.999% of the time, I'm saying that because one day I'm hoping someone's going to find the cure for cancer. And it's like, boom, you're the man um, or woman. Um, <laughs> that was a phrase rather than a sexist thing <laughs> before I get told off. But anyway, say, you know, you're the best person in the world right now. But yeah, in nutrition, no one's got the magic bullet. Um, and try, try and not be led by these sexy, shiny messages. The boring stuff is generally what works. We're here doing our best to try and make it a little bit more interesting, put it in context for you, give you some easy listening. Um, that's my answer. Wonderful. So I think probably to break that down a little bit further, if somebody's very black and white in their approach, or if somebody's trying to sell you into their program, (sighs) supplement or ebook or online, whatever, that has a particular angle or there's a list of foods that you can eat and a list of foods that you can't eat and you must do these exercises to promote fat burning, that's probably not somebody who's very evidence-based. Would you agree? Run a mile. Yeah, agreed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, Martin, it's been a pleasure. Um, You've definitely helped 
us bust some nutrition myths today, which has been wonderful. Can you tell our listeners um, where they can find you, reach out to you? Do you offer online consults at all? Yeah, so my my work at the minute is mainly just giving out free information realistically um and the kind of main stuff that i'm doing day to day is kind of ma- managing the Mac nutrition collective so that's more of an education platform we will be releasing a lame lay person's course so we've got a professional's vocational qualification we will be releasing a a um a lay person's nutrition course to try and help them just get understand some of the basics in the next kind of nine months probably best place to get me honestly right now is instagram at Martin Nutrition, mm-hmm. and kind of I do answer, I do reply to a lot of my DMs on there. I do my best, I get lots. I'm always on my stories educating, and I have a link in my bio that goes to different areas. The other place is my website, martin mcdonaldcom and I have my kind of MacMail newsletter, which I send out email to very infrequently. Um, I'm not a big emailer, but I maybe send one a month, and they tend to be very good. I am okay to say that myself. Um, so those are the two best places probably. Wonderful. So guys, jump on over and give Martin a follow on Instagram. Um, Martin Nutrition, isn't it? Just at Martin Nutrition. Yes. Yeah, wonderful. And I'll link um, your socials in the show notes as well. And if you guys are interested in Martin's um, educational, should we call it platform? Yeah. Yep, yep. Martin Nutrition Lab, um, you can hit Martin up on Instagram and ask him a little bit more about that as well. Brilliant. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure and um, Mm. thank you for answering all my hard-hitting questions today. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. I enjoyed it. All right, guys, and we will catch you in the next episode.